You are Locked On Indians, your daily Cleveland Indians podcast. Part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a bonus edition of Locked On Indians. Uh, I had some computer problems. I've been having many of them. Uh, it's a computer at this point that is like seven years old. I should probably do a you know clean boot and start over, but such a pain. I miss the days. I remember my early computers where they'd come with just a disc, and you could put it in and do that process. And now they want to make you jump through hoops and make it a little more difficult, so you'll just pay them for that service. Uh, I think my last three or four computers, none of them have come with that clean boot disc. And uh, I certainly miss those days. <laughs> but uh, enough about why my computer is failing. I thought since my computer failed and we had some news, we'd do a bonus episode today. Uh, we can talk about some of the virtual baseball. We're going to talk a little bit of this week in history. We're going to talk about the news. And we're going to kind of do some more historical dives. So let's start off with the news of the day. So we finally have the punishment for the Boston Red Sox. If you thought the Houston Astros had a slap on the wrist, that is nothing compared to the light punishment of the Red Sox. We had heard so many stories along the line that what the Red Sox did was worse, what they did was bigger. It was going to be an even bigger punishment. And somehow the Red Sox got one uh, 30-year-old dude to take all the blame, their replay coordinator. Um, It was all on him. It was his ideas. Uh, Alex Cora had something to do with it because he also got suspended and basically was fired and replaced. Uh, interim manager Ron Renke is they took away the interim tag and gave him a three-year contract. But somehow uh, the Red Sox were vindicated by this. It was a very odd thing and just kind of the way it was slipped out there. Their punishment is uh, losing a second-round pick this year in the draft that nobody seems to want to have happen uh, in a year where. There's so much uncertainty. I don't know how much losing a second rounder this year hurts a team. Yes, it's a smaller draft pool. And I had some thoughts where I was like, man, uh, how are the Indians going to, with all of their financial straits, where they're not even one of the teams that uh, looks like they're going to pay their staff, how are they going to pay draft picks? And then I remembered each pick only costs $20,000 this year. It's, it's nice, easy, and cheap. It shouldn't be an issue for the Indians. If any team can't afford you know, $100,000 for draft picks. If their owner doesn't have that type of money, they probably should not own a baseball team. You you need some flexibility, even in, in bad times. But the Red Sox, I mean, that's, their pick was slated to be the 51st overall. I pulled up the slotting money from a year ago. That was worth $1.4 million. Again, it should be a deep draft, and like it would stink in a typical setting, but we are so far from a typical setting. But it would stink. It wouldn't be one of those things where you're like, oh man, that's big pun. It's a minor punishment um this is a real slap minor slap on the wrist it is nothing uh i mean to not even lose their first is is kind of crazy just for cheating but uh i mean last year they lost their first round pick for having they didn't lose it it got moved 10 spots back because they had spent too much money and they were so far into the luxury tax but yeah i mean if you are a braves fan uh, I mean, I saw a lot of irate, irate Braves fans because, you know, Choppy uh, and the Braves got the book thrown at them, but that's because uh, Copy, I should say not Choppy, Copy was lying the whole time and trying to cover himself. And he more, and, you know, talking to people in and around the industry, he was not well liked. He was a bit of a jerk, and I'm sure that didn't help. But at the end of the day, so. I messed up with Cora. He's suspended for this year because he was the bench coach in Houston. Somehow Boston Steel signs 
Their coach is suspended because he was involved in stealing signs for another organization, but was cleared of doing any wrong in Boston. He didn't do anything here, even though there was a sophisticated system and the players didn't know and the manager didn't know. So how were they benefiting? Um, but they were, but the, I don't know. This whole thing is just, it makes no sense to me. So they're getting uh, that system operator, their replay operator is suspended will help pay through all of 2020 and the postseason and they lose a second round pick into the stealing signs thing and everyone else is um said to have been no no they're okay nothing's happening so yeah i don't know if it was just this one rogue player who at least at some at least some occasions during the 2018 regular season utilized the game feeds in the replay room in violation of rules um the information was only relevant when the Red Sox had a runner on second base, which was 19.7% of the, the chance, and Watkins communicated sign sequences in a manner that he had decoded them from in-game for only a small percentage of occurrences. He did not find that Cora or the coaching staff or the front office or the players knew or should have known that Watkins was using this illegal stuff. So basically Watkins, oh yeah, he cheated, and then he passed on the information, but no one knew how he was getting the information. I, it's, like I said, it's very weird to me. Um, you know, this is also the guy who, with the Apple Watch stories from Boston and everything else that was going on, um, that it could be just one rogue guy and that no one else knew what was going on. I just, I, I don't know, that, that stretches my um, incredulity. Is that the word I'm looking for? I'm kind of blanking. But, yeah, I mean, it just, uh, I it seems odd, odd on so many levels that, one rogue uh, replay coordinator, a 30-year-old guy who's not like a central player could somehow have, like, how did they even find that out? How does that information even become known? Like, I don't know how word gets out on something like that, on something that small. Like, there's just a lot of things that don't come together correctly here. Um, So that is kind of our news. It is odd. Uh, again, they lose the 51st overall pick. 1.4 million is that pool value, but no one knows what pool values are going to look like or how things are going to work, uh, with this draft. I mean, at least you would think maybe, okay, a second rounder this year and next year, but no, none of that. It's just, they lose that money and that is it. So odd. I don't have a better way to put it than that. Um, really teams that were cheating and looking to get a leg up. Uh, today showed them that all of them would gladly trade a second round pick for competitive advantage, even a minor one that the Red Sox got. So I, I feel like these punishments are not going to stop anyone uh, from considering cheating again. After this quick break, we'll come back in. We're going to talk about the sim baseball, some historical events, and kind of one of the, the stuff I've been diving into as I've been looking at the history of the Cleveland Indians. So I was realizing we'd already actually talked about today's game on uh, Thursday because what's throwing me off in the game itself is, yes, I admitted before I played a little bit ahead that Monday is the first day of the week and then Sunday is at the end of the week. And I'm used to it being the other way around. So it's just it's messing up my reading of a of a monthly schedule because it's not what I'm used to. So we had already talked about Thursday's game on yesterday's show. So we're going to save Fridays for Friday. Um, we won't actually talk about any sim baseball. I pulled it up, looked at it, and I was like, what? Oh, this is why. Just another oddity in this little game. So instead, let's talk about something that happened this week in Indians history. 
So on the 20th, I believe, yes, on the 20th, the Indians were part of a lottery to get a pitcher. Um, this pitcher had been a, a great pitcher at USC, but in spite of that, had been a 10th round pick in the 1965 draft. He wanted $70,000. Um, the Los Angeles Dodgers balked at, balked at that amount. Uh, if you're curious, uh, using the inflation calendar, it's, that's a little less than $600,000 today. So the way the drafts worked is you had like a June 1 draft, a June 2 draft, if there's anyone left over. And you had a January draft where guys, because there were a lot of players didn't sign, you could then get redrafted. And that January draft was kind of like the dregs, honestly. It was like who was left. Maybe someone didn't want to pay. Occasionally you could find talent in there. And a team did. The The Braves had in the uh, first round, I think, in that draft. Let me double check that one in front of me. Yeah, in the t- first round, 20th overall, had taken a a chance on this pitcher who had been really good at USC by the name of Tom Seaver. Now this is where it gets kind of crazy. So there wasn't like a signing deadline per se. And we kind of saw the extension of this for a lot of years where like you could do draft and follows where basically until the college season started, you could still sign your draft picks. Um, or so you could have someone the entire summer that you would follow and see how they were performing and then maybe sign them. Or if a guy never went to college and sat out that year, uh, you could still sign him up until the next draft. You had that full year. And when Tom Seaver was drafted, the Dodgers, not the Dodgers, the Dodgers were the teams that had drafted him previously, the Braves, uh, they were taking their time trying to figure out a deal. And eventually he was offered by the Braves uh, $40,000 on February 24th to sign. Now, the MLB commissioner, William Eckert at the time, voided the agreement and said, no, you can't sign him. USC has played two exhibition games. He hadn't played in any of them, but he had his team had played games. So then the NCAA comes back and says, he signed a contract, he can't play. So all of a sudden Tom Seaver can't play college, he can't play pro. His family threatens to sue the MLB, and the MLB is like, oh, um, we don't want to get sued. So instead, he is a kind of free agent, and the way it's going to work is any team that wants to can get their name put in this drawing for Tom Seaver. You just have to agree to pay the $40,000 that the Braves offered him. So all the teams out there could pay, you know, essentially put their name in this kitty and you would get Tom Seaver. You would have to pay 40000 but only if you won. So you could get your name in there. Um, and if your name was pulled, you would get him. You would then pay the money. And that was the agreement. And what's crazy and how different things are between now and then is not a lot of teams jumped at this. The Braves, obviously, as the team that had done the first deal with him, uh, were automatically part of it. The only other teams to enter their names in the Tom Seaver lottery were the Phillies, the Mets, and the Indians. Now, as we know, the Mets would win and Tom Seaver would go on to become the greatest pitcher of his generation, uh, just a completely dominating force. So this is February 24th of 66. That's when he signed. You go through all of this rigmarole for him. So he spends 66 in the minors. Uh, At this point, he is uh, in 66. He would have turned 22. So he was, you know, a typical aged kid for how things are going. He spends 66, goes immediately to AAA and is very good in AAA over the course of that season. He gets promoted to the majors for 67, so the Mets pay that $40,000, which, if you're curious, is the equivalent. I have that open over here. 
of about uh, 320,000. So again, today money of 320,000, which is a lot, but not a lot in baseball terms in the grand scheme of things. So if you know Tom Seaver, you kind of know the rest, but let's just, let's, let's go into it. 67 rookie of the year, top 25 MVP. He would be an all-star and he would be an all-star from 67 to 73 every single year. Um, from 67 to 77 he only there was only one year he didn't make the all-star team and that was in 74 uh his era plus that year was a 112 his fip was a 291 he he only he went 11 and 11 because the mets uh in 74 i'm betting just weren't very good so that's kind of one of those things where that was the era very much the era of pitcher win mattering and the mets finished fifth that year uh in their division other than that, he was an all-star every year. He won uh, two Cy Youngs during that time, was a constant top-five Cy Young pitcher, uh, you know, candidate. He would leave the Mets, go to the Reds for a while, still be a strong pitcher, just maybe not as high. Um, he did have a really amazing season in 81 where he kind of peaked out, and he kind of became more of an average pitcher as he moved into his 30s. But that run with the Mets, I mean, like I said, he was the greatest pitcher during that 10-year era there in baseball. Um, And to think how things are different for the Indians, because so if the Indians get him in 67, the 68 Indians finish third in the AL. You know, the next year in 69, they would go to conferences or conferences. They'd have the division format, but the East and the West. But the Indians in 68, because we talked about that team very recently, which kind of makes us a fun uh, turnaround point because we talked about the Indians rotation and the trading of Sonny Siebert adding Seaver in of course is going to make you better is it good enough to get them into the playoffs or does Tom Seaver just end up being someone they trade in a horrible deal um, because they have bad management at the time that really becomes the debate I still think Seaver is the arm they move trying to get Harrelson because Seaver was older amongst those arms. I mean, Sam McDowell and Louis Tion were their top two guys. Hebert was clearly three. Steve Hargan had a really good year in 67. He would kind of come back to earth and become more solid-ish in 68. Stan Williams would have a good 68, but there wasn't much there. Like, basically, Williams probably gets the boot out. Hargan gets shoved down the order, and you make that deal. Maybe they make a different deal instead of Harrelson. Maybe it's they're moving Siebert in 68 instead of waiting till 69, and they find a bat. They find someone who can step up and help them uh, as a team. But, uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to think about how things would have been different. Uh, you just go through and you look at – eventually they traded off all those pitchers, and we talked about how it worked when they traded away uh, McDowell. I mean, the Tiant deal probably honestly worked out as well because, well, yes, he went on to be fantastic for Boston. Uh, he had one rough year for the Twins who then released him, whereas the Indians got Craig Nettles. We'll save the Craig Nettles deal for another day. But, uh, yeah, the Indians were, you know, very close to Tom Seaver. They, they were, what, I think five teams total. I mean, they had a 20% chance to get the greatest pitcher of an era, and uh, it just didn't come together. And... It is interesting that you kind of go back to the, you go forward to the 70s and they're always chasing pitchers. Um, if instead in that time, if they managed to have had uh, Tom Seeger, how things could have worked out differently. If you're curious about the Indians in the 66 draft where uh, Seaver was taken by 
the Braves in the first round. Uh, the fun thing about that is teams can choose to stop drafting in that one because it is such... It's, it's the scraps. It's the table scraps, basically. Uh, that draft went nine rounds. In the ninth round, only the Tigers and the Senators were still picking. Neither of them signed the players that they drafted. Uh, the Indians in the first round took a guy, Christopher Krebs, both with Ks, and he is a fascinating one just when you look at his draft history. 1965 amateur draft, 12th round pick out of high school. In the 66 January secondary phase, uh, the Indians take him in the first round, third overall. Uh, they do not sign him. He goes to uh, a JUCO, uh, Manatee, Sarasota, and he gets taken in the second round of the June draft secondary phase by the Giants. He doesn't sign, ends up going in the first round of the January draft secondary phase by the Pirates in 67. So now we have him being drafted in 65, 66, 67, all relatively high picks outside of that first one. And then he will end up getting to be a first round pick in the June draft secondary phase of 67. So he only once goes in like the main draft. That is in 65 and he's a 12th round pick. And that kind of tells you about the rest of how good those secondary phase drafts, both in June and January, were, where he becomes a first or second rounder every single one of those years, except for um, that original draft class where he's a 10th round pick who did not sign. And he would eventually, while Cleveland did not sign him, he would bounce around with Boston, Washington, and in 71, he would play in uh, AAA for the Indians rather poorly, but the Indians would get their man in time. Uh, their second round pick that year they did sign had been a 20th round pick in the June draft. Uh, Sonny Jackson, a first baseman out of, uh, at that point, Kilgore College. He had been uh, for a Texas guy. Five foot 11 first baseman. Rather poor seasons in 66 and 67. Uh, there was a Bixler who stood out for me. Uh, I couldn't find anything on him. He had been drafted by two teams. Uh, from Miami of Ohio. It's always interesting when there is that uh, kind of connection. They did sign Dennis uh, Deptula in the uh, fifth round that year, who would be released by the Indians in 67 and play nine games in Baltimore. Uh, rather unimpressive numbers as a second baseman. Robert Bixler was a 43rd round pick in the June amateur draft before in the January secondary phase becoming a seventh rounder for the Indians did not sign out of Miami of Ohio. Uh, Richard Zank, another player they did sign, he had been a fourth rounder in the 65 June amateur draft and in the 66th he became an eighth rounder, one of the rare, ca rare cases where a guy went later. A uh, high school pitcher out of Wisconsin from uh, Nevillesville, I now live in Wisconsin, I don't know where that is. And he would actually last in the Indians majors for, or majors, minors for three years. Never get close to the majors, but lefties. You can never have enough of them, right? Closing out some of the other tabs here where I looked into the uh, the Nettles deal. We'll talk about that another day. Uh, the draft with the Indian, where Tom Seaver was taken by the Dodgers, if you're also curious about that, that is the Ray Fossey in the first round, 12th overall. And we've talked about that draft class. And the only other player they drafted who made it to the majors, who they drafted and signed, we should say, Vic Albury, who they took in the ninth round, which was the last chance they would have had to have drafted Tom Seaver because he was drafted before they had a chance to select in the 10th round. Uh, Vic Albury was a lefty out of Key West High School who, when you go to his baseball reference page, I always just love things like this. 
sent to the San Diego Padres in an unknown transaction. We don't even know what happened. Would eventually get to the majors, though, with the Twins and would appear in 101 games. Not bad when your ninth-round pick appears in over 100 games over four seasons. Even if he has a you know a career war of 1.7, he still did something. He saved 37 games. Oh, no, I'm sorry. He started 37 games. GS, not S. He saved one game. But, uh, yeah, just some kind of ran, fun random history for the Indians. Uh, a great what-if scenario. Some news at the top, and we will be back uh, Friday as well. You get three in a row here. Uh, we'll talk about the sim tomorrow. We'll talk about high points of the 2019 season, going with like the whole theme that we're doing across the network. Uh, thank you all for listening. I, uh, give me some feedback. I, I feel very much in the void. Feedback has been low. Our numbers are good, so I want to thank everyone for that, though. Uh, not as good as they were before, being honest. But uh, so, so remember, listen, download, tell a friend, rate and review, all of that stuff can so help out uh, a smaller podcast like this one. Tell your smart devices to play Locked On Indians, Locked On Fantasy, um, Locked On, you know, our major league flagship podcast. Uh, I know the draft is tomorrow night. I know Friday morning maybe won't be our strongest numbers as obviously that makes a lot more sense to follow the NFL draft with some real information. But I hope you will take the time to still download, listen, and, uh, you know, tell me what you want to hear. Send me messages what historically should i focus on what non-historically should i focus on send me things for a mailbag we'll do some fun stuff i know i need to get back to the all-time indians we haven't done the pitching end of that yet so that is also on the agenda uh for the upcoming weeks as we find things to do is it's starting to feel like baseball could be more of a you know the, the boys of july we'll see thank you again you are always awesome And as always, go Tribe.